0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dan Pfeiffer. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You are
1: correct, yes. Uh,
0: Who you know from Keep It at 1600, Pod Save America, was the comms deputy comms director in the Obama White House, then the comms director in the um, Obama White House, and is one of the most important voices um, on the left, but really in American politics right now, if if you don't include... um, as Mike, I, we spent some time with Mike Murphy today, and um, he talks about the guys in the aluminum foil
1: hats. So if you exclude the guys <laughs> yes, in yes. the aluminum
0: foil hats, yes. Dan is really high up on the yes, list I, of the most important. Yes, I, have,
1: I have no conspiracy theories to sell you today. Yes. Um, so hey, man, thanks for thanks for being uh, here. Th- this is a huge treat to me. As I said to you before we came on, Mike, huge fan of Billions. Rounders was a defining movie in my life, and even though I know nothing or care nothing about poker. I and I have a, I have a one month old at home, so I've been up watching cable movies at night, and Rounders is on almost every night. And I love so, that. Yeah. Well,
0: that's the you know. I think Bill Simmons thinks that's a real part of the reason yes. why yeah. the movie to you know took off. And and uh, thanks. Um, but I, listen, the the times are. I'm I'm someone who loves to talk about me and my movies, but. <laughs> The times were in demand, actually, that we have a different co- conversation. You have a new book that's that's out this next week. Today.
1: It's today, today it's out today. So it's out, th- it's out now. For, and and
0: in fact, this podcast is going to hit the day we do this interview. It's going to hit middle of the night tonight. Okay. So your new book is out, and it's called?
1: Yes, we still can. Politics in the Age of Obama, Trump, and Twitter.
0: So I, I told you this. Um, I just got the book, and I'm about halfway through it. I never lie to the audience or the guest. <laughs> if I, I read all the books. I will finish it. But I, I will say um, – What's great about it is I feel like we're friends from reading the book. Oh, that's you are, great. You write an incredibly um, intimate, inviting style, mm-hmm. and you really bring us inside the way you think about the world. Mm-hmm. And I, what I was struck by was it, even even though I don't think you took a lot of contemporaneous notes, I think you st- mm-hmm. say no, in the book no. that you didn't. Yeah. Uh, have you always had sort of a writer's eye for things? Have you? I know you have a freaky mm-hmm. memory. You talk yeah. about that you have a freakish memory a lot in the book, which I, I relate to because mm-hmm. I, I have a uh, weird memory mm-hmm. too. Um, when did you start... I mean, I know you tell this trivial pursuit story, but I guess what I'm interested in is did you always hold yourself out as an observer for a lot of of your life? Because you do uh, write the book in a way that is heavy on
1: uh, what you were feeling and what other people are thinking and uh, the way you're observing. I don't... I never thought of myself as a writer. I didn't... Like, I was a government major in college. I had never really – I had never tried to write a novel. I never tried to write a book before this. I don't think – if you don't – if we go past college where I'm sure I wrote 20- and 30-page papers, the longest thing I've written in the last 15 years are are six- or seven-page memos for Barack Obama. Since I left the White House a few years ago, most of my communications are sub-280 characters. But I am a reader, like a voracious, always nerdy reader. And I may – the decision back in 2007 when I was working on the campaign. I was just like sucking in... I used to be someone who like read almost all nonfiction. It was all like this learning exercise. Like I must... I'm going to consume all the books on the Vietnam War or all the books on Kennedy. And then I was like, I need a brain break. And so I read almost exclusively fiction. And I think that probably more than anything else, more than like like reading David Halberstam or Doris Kearns Goodwin helped me. It was just like reading good fiction to think about telling a story.
0: Fiction has all sorts of other benefits too. Yeah. Don't you think? I go yeah. back and forth. Uh, when I'm writing the season of the show, I, I can't read as much um fiction. But uh, I man, as soon as it ends, I'm I'm reading fiction yeah, all it's, the time it, right away.
1: It's a great it is a great it's a it's a great it's not really an escape per se. It can be, but it's also just a helps you think about the world in, in a way that sometimes a nonfiction book doesn't. Okay, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm really conflicted here about doing this as a regular episode of the moment and really just talking to you about the world, and I, I think it's going to be more about the world, but through the prism of, of who you are as mm-hmm. you talk about in yeah. your book. Because even the subject of reading, you know, what is it that folks like us miss? Uh, when we look at Trump, we see someone who doesn't read, and it's one of the yeah. reasons we make this judgment yeah. about him. Why do you think there's not a prime? Why do you think that people don't understand the ways in which that which that
1: limits him? And how much do you think it limits him? I think in terms of the day to day. Well, let me, let me put it this way: what I think are the most important characteristics in a president. Yeah, this is great. Are empathy, um, humility. M- but humility paired with the enough of self-confidence and arrogance to be the person who looks out at all 300 million Americans and says, who's the best person for this job? And then deciding, me. Yeah, I think it's me. Yeah. I think and, I'm the guy or a woman. And, but, you, but, under, but the humility comes in knowing that, that the job is bigger than one person, right? Because the presidency is this weird job where you're head of state and head of government. You're running the government. You're also supposed to be the face of the nation. You say head of state, the the figurehead, yeah, yeah, you're the, queen the of, representative. You're the queen of England and the prime minister at the same time, right? And and so, but the, the other thing I think is incredibly important in this characteristic, which is where I feel Trump is lacking, and I thought Barack Obama was very strong on this, is intellectual curiosity, is you want to know you want to look at all of the sides of the argument and try to work through these very complicated problems. And you need perspective to do that. You need context. Because it's much – it's always much more complicated than do A or do B. You know? And that—that that is where the – I think a better read president, not just in reading the memo that was sent to you, but in understanding the world – would it make a different decision on this issue of child separation? Because you would understand the historical parallels, you would understand why people would react the way they do. That someone like Trump has not been able to do.
0: And even if you if you'd even read uh, fiction,
1: yeah, it doesn't have to. You would be.
0: understand yeah. uh, the internal life yeah. of people other than you. Yes, and uh, you would understand because even if you are someone who's shut off, if you read fiction, first of all, you become less shut off. Yeah, I think. Yeah. But the other thing you made me think of when you were talking about when you briefly mentioned the Queen. Is that uh, every president in my lifetime until this one, whether I wildly disagreed with, with them or not, I believed in their sense of duty. Do you think this guy has any sense of duty, or how do you how would you frame that sense of duty? And I want to broaden it. Yeah. Does Mitch McConnell have a sense of duty to anything beyond party? And I don't want to be just cynics yeah. from the left. I, yeah. I want to understand how this happened because what I see when when I see them filibustering Merrick Garland, or not filibustering mm-hmm. him, but no. not allowing him to be appointed or voted upon, and then putting Gorsuch in is a kind of cynicism that I haven't seen in my life. You know, I read like you. I read Tip O'Neill's autobiography. No. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but, uh, I'm missing this sense of duty. It, I think... It is – like I hesitated to articulate the most generous explanation for Mitch McConnell's conduct, Uh, but I will do that for you, right? So this is what I think the thought process is. This is is the
0: most generous this is is what
1: you believe? This is the most generous. This this would be – if you were trying to – how do you rationalize this in the nicest way? You would say you believe that there is nothing more important than your – than the things you truly believe around – Take for in his case, would this would be choice yeah or Mitch McConnell cares passionately about defeating campaign finance reform he was the original lawsuit that led to uh, our to the need for campaign finance reform was McConnell versus u s right and so there is no thing more important than the Supreme Court you're going to put someone on there it is going to change the direction of policy in this country for forty years and so you you make this you decide that your commitment to this ideological issue is more important than your commitment to the governing norms that define have defined this country and made our system work. That's that is how you do it. What I where I struggle now is that, and I think we're gonna have to do some fixing about this in the later year. In the po- if we can survive the our current moment, what I think we have now realized is that the system that was that it was originally created and then put f- and that we have operated in never anticipated someone like Trump it basically anticipated well-meaning public servants who disagree and who will abide by within the a framework because we haven't written all these rules down we haven't established so we just did things because they were the right thing That's to do so we talk about norms yeah so these we don't like the problem is norms are gone we need rules we need laws the – around simple things like the idea that the – like the president is exempt, president of the United States, whether it was Obama, Bush, Reagan, Trump, are exempt from the conflict of interest rules that prevent government employees from enriching themselves. That's crazy because the, the, I think the thought was why would – like who would who – would who would choose this most important office in the land and then use it to enrich themselves?
0: I think probably the reason I, – I mean you've mm. probably given this maybe yeah. a little more thought than yeah. I but uh, perhaps another reason – for a normal president, yeah, yeah. is you know the president's going to have to engage in so many meetings yeah. that might tangentially touch yeah. right. things that they might that if yeah. if, if before every meeting mm. they had to vet out in a strict way, how do I make <laughs> right. sure there's zero? Because there, there are ways
1: to do it, like of course, you could yeah, deploy double line trust. You know, it's right. insane yeah. that yeah. the guys yeah, that is,
0: you know. Uh, using the yeah. office to... St- yes. What do they call it? A- Cacostocracy C-ca- or whatever. Yeah. I can't pronounce the word. I can just read it yeah. on Twitter. Right, me yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, it's in- in- insane to think about that. Um, how sad does this make you? Like, because you're someone who loves governance. Yeah. the country You don't only love... are reading your book, yeah. you love the country. You love what America stands for. Yeah. You also love process. I do love process, yeah. And so what does it feel like to you who saw the power of uh, using process... And then seeing now this uh,
1: aberrant version of it or this abandonment of right. it,
0: does it sadden
1: you? Yes. Let me put it this way. As someone who knows a lot about how government actually works having I mean, been there, you're, everyone else who doesn't know that is standing on the Titanic. And they're, they think we are headed towards a small ice flow. But those of us who've been in the building know what's under the ocean and know we're in big trouble. And I'm – I'm very, I am, I wrote the book to sort of help process my emotions on this and to think it through. And the process of writing it was fascinating because every chapter in the original draft was reflective of what was happening in my brain in the moment based on what's happening in the country. And then you went
0: through a second time. A second
1: time and a third time and a fourth time uh, to try to like sync up the, <laughs> sync up the emotional uh, tone. But... I I think we are in a very dangerous place for democracy as we think of it in America, which has been a system that for the most part has functioned as intended. Sometimes the intentions were not great, but it has functioned as intended. And watching this and knowing what sort of the opportunity cost for the country that we're in this mess is, is deeply depressing in the moment. But then at the same time, as you sort of like what was so special about my time with Barack Obama in the campaigns where you would, we go to these rallies and there would be tens of thousands of young people who had never been involved in politics before who were there and cheering and wearing the t-shirts and had been just come to the rally from knocking on doors and like on their own organized their entire dorm to come to the rally. And I now, and this is something we get to see. As we travel the country with Pod Save America, is you're seeing that again? Like we we've gotten a chance to spend time with these Parkland kids who have organized the March for Lives, and you're just like, oh, there is like there is hope here. There is a there is a the, reason the,
0: for the idea. It's of uh, a resistance. It, it's not just um, a catchphrase or little groups of liberals. Yeah. You're feeling. People looking at the idea of liberty, yeah. because what we're really talking about is the erosion of liberty. Yeah. Right? Um, mm. They govern, they, they propagandize that they're after liberty, which is why it's, a, even though certain things become cliché, like uh, using Orwellian as a cliché. Yeah. But in fact, they are Orwellian in the fact that they're using, or maybe it's more like Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Yeah. They're using words that mean something different than they really mean. They're eroding liberty while saying yeah. they're for liberty. Yeah. Right. Have we seen this before?
1: I mean, we've seen it. We've had dark times in our history, right? If you read- um, The 1800s. Well, yeah. But even in our modern time, you think in 1968, you read uh, the books of that time. You think of what went on there, the Vietnam War, Watergate. What is scary, though, is at the end of the day, Nixon was forced to leave office, not just because tapes came out, but because a dozen Republican senators went to the White House and said, you have to go. I worry that if our current Republican leaders had been Republican leaders back in 1974 then Nixon would have finished his term because there I I don't see yet a world we'll we'll, we'll do that. The good news is is we have elections. We have not like the like lots of scary things are happening. We are not we're not we, – this is not becoming Putin's Russia. We're not canceling elections, and the military is not blocking polling places. We have a lot of other threats to our democracy with campaign finance reform and redistricting and voter suppression, but we're going to have an election in 2018, and we have the opportunity to elect people who can be a guardrail on this. And so there, is, there is hope in that sense. Like, I think we're in a moment. We've been through moments like this before. There are some special reasons why this moment is scary because of the sort of – where the parties are, where the Republican party is, the sort of the state of media and social media and all of that. But we're not yet at a point where we are beyond the point of no return. Well,
0: for me, I just don't have any faith. And, are, and I want to understand how this hits you. Uh, I'll phrase it as a question. And don't pull punches about this. Mm-hmm. Like, Do you believe Trump and then the people who do his bidding... That the idea of love of country really means anything to them. It doesn't to Trump. Right. It just doesn't. There's
1: no, there is not a single shred of evidence, a single anecdote that anyone's ever offered that suggested Trump putting anything above himself. Like the convention, like the Republican convention, every political convention, no matter how robotic or inane the person is, is about finding people to tell humanizing stories about them. We went through the entire Republican convention. No one in 2016 offered any story. There is a story about Trump consoling a fellow billionaire on a helicopter after the loss of his wife. Like, that's the only one we can come up with. There's no, like – Trying to save these children or doing, you know, like Mitt Romney, for instance, also a, a very wealthy man like Trump. But they told stories of his missionary work, of spending his money to help find a, someone's missing child. Like there were well, stories. Well, whenever you meet
0: someone who knew Romney, they yeah. always say, you know, in private, that guy's funny yeah. and empathetic yeah. and he's yeah. great. I yeah. mean, right? Everyone says yeah. he's a great small room guy. Yeah. I and mean, Trump, I guess, is a great small room guy in a different... Yeah,
1: but there's no example. There's no. There's nothing that suggests that he did this for any reason other than the accumulation so, of power, fame, and money. So
0: how does it...
1: I get that you guys are
0: doing pod save, and so you mm. go around and you're seeing this. But how does it not feel like just a gut punch that, that is attempting to wipe away like everything that you've done? And how does it... First of all, how do you not want to just roll up your sleeves and go back to work? Uh, but also, how does the fact that these voters repudiated everything that we all believed so much in, not just make you want to go fuck them?
1: Well, I think we are trying to do work. You're not just—it's not just—we don't just host a podcast every week. We are—we're raising money for Democratic candidates. No, we're campaigning for them, and we're also in our own capacity, like offering whatever free advice people want about. Messaging, like sure. we use our experience, partially why I wrote the book. I mean, is it a gut punch? 100%. It is a, on a, it is a daily gut punch you think about the things that we work so hard on being being erased. And of course there's ego to it, right? Like we worked on this, we went there, but it's also, we worked on it because we thought it helped people. And now there are gonna be people who are hurt by it going away. And that's a gut punch. And I, I was like, people ask all the time, will you go work on another campaign? If I find the right person, and the only reason I say that is, it doesn't work if it's not the right person. If you don't, if you're not whole in, then you, they, well, you someone else should be. Well, you describe
0: this amazingly yeah. in the book because you describe uh, the close calls. You, you know, you mm. describe the uh, Evan Bly thing. Yeah. You describe uh, how you uh, campaigns. You you mm. lost where you got yeah. close to, you know, Dasho almost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you describe meeting Obama and being blown blown away, yeah. and then uh, in a way that made you be like, okay, I'm. I'm ready. You, you yeah. tell the small detail that told you this was a different politician because I, I, I love this. it's uh, yeah. something I've thought about
1: in my, my my work. When you showed up for the meeting, so, so I had never met Obama before this before this meeting. Um, I was interested in him. I had friends who worked for him and spoke highly of him, and I went to his office to do a job interview where I didn't think I would. I didn't really think I was going to take the job. I didn't know that I was kind of. I was pretty down on politics at the time. A lot of losing. I basically picked Democratic politics. Out of, out of college, and then we never won anything again. And so it was like, it was like a tough 10 years, a t- you know, decade of just. Well, you were in the White House. If I, I got there, but not, I was an intern in the White House. But you were still in the White House. Yeah, I got, I got to visit it, yes, which was nice. But then I, I went to work on the Al Gore's campaign, and then we lost, and we lost in 2004. And, but so I go to wait, I'm sitting in his office waiting for him, and there's a group of school kids who are, I think, from, some from Illinois, uh, mostly African-American kids on a field trip, and usually there's an experience. I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of senators and a lot of president, people who want to run for president. And there's a real, it's real, it's very clear who's important and who's not. And usually, you're all, they're always late. There's always some eager beaver aide who comes out and is like, the senator is, you know, he's on a very important call. He'll be with you in a minute, right? And then they come back again. And I'm just waiting. And it, like, whatever time I meeting was, like 11 o'clock on the dot, the door opens. And I hear this voice that I'd only ever heard. Basically, the 2004 convention speech, saying, "Dan, I'm Barack," and I turn around and it's Obama. He see, but then he sees these kids, and he he says, "Just one second. and he goes over to these kids, and he ta- he doesn't just take a picture with them, where like you gather them all together. This is before anyone could take a, really take a selfie, and so he gathers them again. Then he goes, but he goes around and talks to basically all of them and listens to them. And there's no, if it, I'm thinking this. If this guy's running for president, this is a bad use of time. These are school kids from his home state of Chicago. These are not delegates from Illinois, from Iowa. And listens to them. and it was just very genuine. And then he took me back to his office. This is the part that struck me the most. I had interviewed with four people who were thinking of running for president that year, and every one of those meetings was the same. Here is how I'm going to win. Here is the strategy. Here's the polling that says it. In my meeting with Obama, we met for an hour. At no point did he ever talk to me about how he was going to win. Never cited A poll. All he talked about was why he wanted to His run. Mission. and wh- why, Yeah, why he wanted to run for president and what he wanted to do if he won. And that just – I'd never seen that a politician before.
0: Had you sat with people um – of equal kind of intellectual wattage in the game before, because I also think that must be a stunning thing to sort of really like check the corners of his knowledge and realize that they far surpass yours. It, it's you. It must I be so, unusual.
1: It is very unusual. I sat with I've, there. There, I sat with many very very smart politicians. What what I found unique about Obama over the years is that he is a man of extraordinary talent, who is very ordinary at the same time. In the sense, he feels like like he he doesn't rub his talent in your face and he can t- like talk to you just like except a on, the, on the basketball court. Yes. Yeah, since yes, he was he much better than you.
0: Uh, because I know you're very serious about basketball.
1: Yeah, I actually did not play with him that often. He had a very specific way in which he organizes his pickups. games. You try camps? to get
0: in the run? No. Well, I'm so interested in this. Yes. Okay.
1: So in the book, it's clear that basketball
0: is huge to you. It's I'm, a huge I'm sorry. Life. This is really interesting to me. So to so the point where, like, um, you dedicate. And this rhymed with me. I played yeah. on my senior. I played on varsity. Yeah. I don't. I haven't talked about this much on my own thing. Yeah. But I, I was on the varsity my senior year of high school. A, I didn't play very much. <laughs> we got to eighth to the eighth in the state. Yeah. But I really related to how much it meant to you. Yeah. You said the coach said to you, he never had anyone who got more out of less than you did, (laughs) which I don't even think – you said maybe he meant an insult, but it doesn't even sound like it. That's the kind of thing you say when you're celebrating somebody. You slept with the basketball. kid. Now you're with the most famous basketball-playing non-NBA player in the world in the
1: president. So what are the dynamics like that you can't uh, it's your way into the game? A lot of people try really hard to play with him, and they really ask for it. And – I take it very seriously and very competitively. And I don't think it would have been good for me if we played together, particularly because I would have been- You would have guarded him hard? I would have been very aggressive about it. And I mean, and I wouldn't have liked losing. And I also wouldn't have liked him talking crap to me about it. And he, and I just felt it was like, like we shot around all the time. We played horse before. How'd you do in horse? Fortunately for me- the like a lot of times you're prepared, you're waiting for a rally at a high school and you're hanging out in the gym beforehand. Fortunately, both times we played, the rally had to start before we the tie was broken. But this is an example, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you how com- here's an example of yes. how competitive he is. Yes. I had been, I had bad ankles, and so I had been playing for a long time and I'd been, I'd been off for like maybe six months or something. We're in New Hampshire in this gym and we're in one of these gyms that's empty, we're just waiting to go somewhere else, and he and there's a basketball and it's me and Reggie Love who's the president's body played guy who played, Duke. played for Duke is very good at basketball and Obama and Obama's over like working on his speech and so Reggie and I are shooting so we go around the horn and I haven't picked up a basketball. Is this the first time Obama's seen you play basketball yeah. do you think? Yeah. And so we haven't only worked for, oh, him for so a few months. your eye. You're looking at him, right? Yeah. I mean so, you know that he's looking yeah. at you. Yeah. And so I did so Reggie's like let's shoot. So like we're just like Reggie goes around the horn shooting basically like 18 footers, makes a bunch of them. My turn. I go around. I hit like all of them, just like, just like in his zone around
0: the three-point line, basically. Or We're probably
1: probably like 18 feet out, right? Like probably a little bit inside, some top out, of the some key, Basically, top yeah, of, the key, top of the, key the key around, and I was sort of like in his zone. I was paying attention to Obama. Obama's looking now. I see Obama's looking, and he's like, he says to me, "That's a pretty nice touch." I'm not sure you could get that off in a game though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. He was very competitive. Right. And I was like, you know what? We're gonna add some distance here, and. Uh, Because he really didn't play with – other than Reggie. He didn't play with staff that often.
0: Who did he play with usually?
1: This is pretty cool. So Arnie Duncan, who was the secretary of education, played at Harvard, professional basketball player in Australia, two-time MVP of the NBA All-Star Celebrity Game, and is one of the all-time great pickup basketball players in the history of the world. Uh, And he – so what used to happen is Reggie Love would get young players that he knew who were mostly – College guys, some who played like high major, Division One. some a lot of guys played Division Three, like sort of solid his, ball players, very good ball players. And so, but young guys, like twenties. And then Arnie would organize older guys, like in the forties. Awesome. And the old, and they were the, all these guys who had played somewhere very real, but were not, but it sta- stayed with the game, and they were so smart, and so good at basketball. The old guys would win most of the time? Almost all the time. They were the like, Globetrotters, and the yeah, other guys yeah. were the generals? and so, like, Arnie is basically, like, having, like, some combination of Brad Stevens and Popovich on the court, your thing. Like, Arnie, like, there's this, there's a, a streetball, like, a pro-am league in D.C. called, summer league, called the Goodman League, which plays out in the projects in D.C. It's like the equivalent of Rucker or Drew League. Sure. Kevin Durant plays there when he's home. A few couple years ago, Arnie took a team. Of guys from his like Arnie's fifty took like, a team of guys he played pickup ball with and almost won the championship <laughs> like because like er- those everyone else is like throwing oops off the board and Arnie is and like, just, like run backdoor setting door, picks yeah, and running backdoor back back yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it is easy to talk about a great product like the one blade razor if you had a professional shave from a barbershop, you know how it like just changes the way you feel for the day. I don't know if you've seen the first movie David Levine and I ever wrote, Rounders. But when the guys have to refresh themselves and, and get ready to go on this big run, this epic run, uh, well, they make a bad decision to go play against uh, these cops. But what does Worm say when he looks at Matt and Matt seems tired and he's like, uh, y- y- I know just what you need. And what he needed was a great shave. But you can't always go to the barbershop. First of all, it's super expensive. Second of all, it takes a lot of time out of your day. What you can do is use the one blade to recreate that experience as best you can at home. Listen, one blade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burns, no ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving. From the perfect pivot in weight to the finest materials such as ultra high-grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand-assembled and serial numbered. And every one blade is backed by a 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if you're ready to have the best shave of your life, visit onebladeshave.com slash moment. Try it. Give it some time. And if it isn't the best shave of your life, simply return it. Visit onebladeshave.com slash moment. So you never played in a run? No, not once. And I'm very glad about that decision. And you didn't talk shit with him about it either. Never. See, this is also making me sick, because it's hard to picture the president now engaging in this way. The golf thing is totally more restrictive and and different. And it seems to me that's just where uh, you take um, Lindsey Graham to show him the blackmail pictures to get him on your side. It's like you're out behind the tree around the eighth hole, and you, come on, let's pee, and
1: then you show him the dossier, and then he gets in line. That
0: seems like what Trump does, as opposed
1: to... Golf was an escape for Obama. He would take the best golfers on the staff. Like, your thing was you had to be good, you had to be fast. Right, sure. And so we had a bunch of guys who would play go- college golf at some level, and they would play with Obama every week. And he didn't want to work. Like, every other thing else is work. Like, he didn't – and these were not staff – It wasn't, like, the policy advisor. It were, like, some of the advanced guys, the body guys. And so he could just sort of be – a guy it
0: seemed like you wanted to keep some sort of formal distance i wanted to what's that Bec- yeah talk about uh, uh, talk about that because uh, i'm thinking about what um macron did today mm. where he corrected the kid who called him like dude or bro yeah. or something did you see that uh uh-uh. so a, yeah. on the line i guess yeah. what's his nickname maki or whatever yeah, yeah. his nickname is kid called him that and he mm. like stopped the whole event <laughs> and he said like no mr president yeah uh so i'm, I'm wondering you know for me i think in uh, the fact that Washington didn't and, and Jefferson didn't want there to be yeah. any sort of pomp and sort to, yeah. to the to the job, and now we have a guy here who who wants it to all be regal. How did you how did you think about all that? stuff?
1: It was very hard because like throughout the whole campaign, he's Barack. He calls you on the phone and he's like, "Pfeiffer, it's Barack," you okay. know. And you email with him, right? And you get to the White House, and all of a sudden, Barack is Mr. President. You're supposed to stand up when he comes in the room. And it was very hard to learn those things. My view, I consider – it's hard to say, like, the president is your friend. But we are close, and we spent a lot of time together over eight years and and are still in time. And I see him when I'm in D.C. or whatever else, and and it's, like, very nostalgic and reminiscing. But also as, like, a, st- like a part of his senior team or a staff member, you're also trying to help him manage his life, right? And so he – He doesn't need – everyone is trying to get Everyone wants something. Everyone wants something, right? And they they want a moment. They want a picture. They want their book signed. They want their T-shirt signed. They want you to go golfing with them. And so I think he appreciated people who didn't – if you didn't need that from him or didn't want that from him. But like we talked sports. All the time. Like, I traveled with him most of the time of the six years I was there. And there's a lot of dead time when you travel, right? You're sitting on Air Force One, just waiting to get to place. You're standing outside an event while you're waiting for this. Did you helped con- him with the brackets? We, he would never, ever. He, we <laughs> he sent, had to do the We sent in a briefing the first year. And he, like, I went in. So we do these things with Andy Katz every year. Yeah. And during the campaign, he just did his bracket like – he was in the same pool we were, right? So he just do his bracket. And then so the first one, we're doing the White House. Andy Katz is coming in with a board. ESPN's got a whole thing set up. And so you have to send a memo in for every event. Sure. Because that's the protocol. It's got to go in the briefing book. And so my team wrote a memo like with suggestions and like attached articles like with various experts' picks. And so I went in and I approved the memo. It like has my name on it. And I went in to like brief him to say like, we're doing this, you're doing this. Here's how it's going to work. It's going to take this long. And he looked at, the, he looked at the memo and he kind of like tossed him. He's like, what, what you think I need this? Oh, you, you sent right. me a memo on the bracket. Like, Oh, this makes me so happy and yeah. sad that he's not there. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's go, let's go backwards
0: to how you got there. Yeah. Um, and then I, at the end of this, when we, I want to talk a little bit about the communications that are happening now, or, or maybe here, let's, let's do this. Uh, so I watch his comms team, and yeah. they're like the opposite of what you guys tried to do, yeah. which was you guys tried to, even though Obama has said a lot of the time, he knows it's foolish to try to reason. Yeah. Uh, you did, though. You guys yeah. did try to uh, reason all the time and and, and tr- try to communicate in a way that would lay out, uh, not that there was never misinformation no. or partial information. Yeah. You were you're still part of a political team. Right, right. But what is it? What do you... How do you apprehend what they're doing? Are they putting these people out there to get shelled? Do, do these people, when you look at Sarah, and I know you didn't brief all the time; yeah. you had people who briefed for you, yeah. but you were intimately involved in that yeah. process. What do you see when you look at what goes on in the briefing room now? The way they're—do you think it's uh, un-American the way they're trying to control the press? Do you think that they're—they believe what they're saying? What is their obligation? Uh, who to whom
1: is their highest obligation when they're out there briefing? Under a normal world, the obligation is the American people, and this and what, is that stated? Yeah, you. Here's why this matters because it matters
0: to me. I want to hear why it matters.
1: <laughs> so all a lot of what happens and what gets covered in the press and what the press secretary says is about trying to push an ideological agenda. It's like here's why Congress should pass our health care bill. Here's why they should not. Here's why the Republican bill is bad. You know, you're doing that, but but a huge part of the job, the part that this is the iceberg part you don't see, is like non-political government stuff. So here's an example: in two thousand and nine, there was a swine flu epidemic, and so our HHS secretary, our press secretary, the president, the vice president had to go out and engage in a public awareness campaign to tell people to get a flu vaccine, to sneeze into their elbow, to wash their hands, the and this is what's so sad with what's happening with the Homeland Security Secretary and the Trump administration is that per is the person theoretically who goes out and says, we had a terrorist attack. Here's what happened. Who do so we think is responsible? The Our hurricane is headed towards your town. Evacuate. Our hurricane is headed towards your town. Stay. Right. And if you can't believe, that's why you can't sacrifice your credibility. Because there's going to be a moment when lives are at stake. And so now, if we have a swine flu epidemic... Who is going to listen to these people when they say, sneeze into your elbow or get a flu vaccine? And that is really alarming. And I think, that, I think they know they're lying. They 100% know this they're lying.
0: They, Sarah Sanders knows she's lying.
1: Yes. She, it is, you cannot – Donald Trump is a liar. Like, that is a, like whatever else you think, you may agree with his policies, but it is a documented fact that he lies all the time. He will tell you that the grass is blue and the, and the sky is green. He's a combination, right, of a
0: liar and someone who parrots the last person who was nice yeah. to him.
1: Yeah. These are da- it's a dangerous combination. It's yeah. a bad combo. Yeah. yeah. But he – I mean like the – like there's a huge debate in the media. Falsehood, misstatement, lie. But here's the thing. If you tell the country you had no idea that your lawyer paid Stormy Daniels for silence and then you say months later – that you actually reimbursed him for said payment, then you lied about that. So I can I understand
0: the toll that it's taking on the country. What kind of toll do you think it takes on these people from a, a morale? I mean, from a morale perspective, I mean, you talk about the difference in the kinds of leaks yeah. in your book. Yeah. But what do you think? Do you like are these people true believers? Are is it really just that they care about abortion? Is it just that they care about? abortion and states rights like what Mm. is this they care about uh, abortion and they don't like gay people like how do you look at what the how do you boil it down to the
1: bullion cube i this is a guess because i don't know any of these people i don't want to know any of these people frankly i have zero empathy for them they knew what they were getting into but it's important to recognize that these people who work for donald trump sarah huckabee sanders stephen miller um well, he's an ideal. He's a different. He's he, might not, a different he might be a different but, case. But here's the thing about all yeah. of them: these people were the dregs of the Republican Party. They had they they could not have gotten their call returned by this by the by Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush or these people who were thought to be they they been, they were in the basement. I sort of described this in a and they've made grave moral compromises in order to to what be taken to the big leagues. It's sort of like you're playing ball at the YMCA. Someone comes to you and says, want to play for the Lakers? Or in your case, want to play for the Knicks? But here's what you got to do. And that's basically what they did. And I do think that they're like at an inception level of moral compromise where it's like, Hillary was terrible. We hate Hillary. Donald Trump's in, in office. He's the best we have. We're going to do this. And the only, and I want this job. And the only way to have this job is to parrot his lies. And I don't think they realize – like I, I can't speak to what, the, what moral crisis they're having, but – one would hope that they're doing damage to their integrity and credibility that will that is not something that will be fixed easily. I mean,
0: when you were in the White House, you were in i, I believe you know people talk about it's the most scandal free white House no. because it's not like Republicans corner the market on scammy yeah. administrations. There's been wacky <laughs> shit in a lot of administrations yep. of all sizes. Yeah. I guess Carter had people in his administration who were fucked up. he wasn't yes, yeah, right you know, Hamilton Jordan or whatever. Right, he people yeah. who were, yeah. I guess, sketchy. Maybe all Hamilton Jordan did was blow at Studio 54. Yeah. I'm not, th- sure. I th- yeah. I'm not sure he actually committed a, a, yeah, a yeah, he, crime he, of state. Right. I think right. He might have just picked up models and done blow off of their Yeah, uh, Because that's
1: something that normally happens to political operatives. So that was a real, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, a, that's that's it's a on, news yeah. story. Yeah.
0: But, um, and I think I'm getting the details right, actually. Yeah, yeah of, I think that's oh, exactly right. I, I think that's what, what that was. Uh, but you were able to be in a position where you Actually, did never worried about the motives for the orders that came down. No, not once. And and how you know a military guy wrote me today online, and he said, "Listen, I know why you're drawing these parallels to fascist regimes, but I'm telling you, I'm in the military, and my brothers and I talk about this all the time. And if it crossed the line, we would not follow." Yeah. But to me, that just seems unrealistic. I. What do you like? because
1: of the slowness of the creek. We are we – are, this is the slow boil of the frog in the water, right? There, I mean I think there is an element of that, which is – and I think this – like when you brought up Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan, for example. So let's say Paul Ryan.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about both those guys. Yeah,
1: so I think in his – I have – I know people who work for Paul Ryan. Weirdly, they listen to our podcast. Uh, I've met them. Uh, they're nice people they're smart people they really like Paul Ryan they swear by him as a person yet it's hard to explain his conduct in this era and so what i think has happened is it is you make moral compromise after moral compromise for what you think is the larger good to the point it's all that you that you've passed everything so here would be i'm guessing this no one from who works for Paul Ryan has explained this to me but they would say if paul Paul Ryan were to take a stand on X, he would be deposed and you would get this other worse person. So he is forced to do this thing he doesn't want to do.
0: The only person if, I believe this about is John Kelly. John Kelly's the only person I believe yeah. this about. I don't believe this about, I believe John yeah. Kelly might be, we might find out in 20 <laughs> years he was a great American hero. Yeah. But... Uh, for me, I look yep. at Paul Ryan and its calcu- calculation. It's a long... It's a it's Party I don't believe first. they think... I don't believe they think the democratic norms are in jeopardy. I think they think we're whiny
1: crybabies.
0: Yeah. And I don't think they be- they believe the structure will hold. Yeah. yeah. And then in eight years, they want uh, the things they're able to accomplish through him. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, yeah.
1: They, he, they view Trump as a vehicle for this ideological conservative agenda. And they're willing to to... to they're willing to sit idly by as these horrible things happen. And sort of the the frog in the water metaphor, sort of Paul Ryan is the frog. It is boiled around him and he didn't really realize it happening. And it, and it goes longer than Trump. Like it's not just Trump because when Barack Obama was president, I talked about some examples in this book, there was real racially divisive pure racism sentiment about Obama coming from elected Republican politicians. Steve King from Iowa said some of the most horrible things that – the kind of thing that you would throw your uncle out of Thanksgiving for. Sure. And the Republicans had a choice then. They could have said, get out. We don't want this, right? That would have been the – probably the – that's certainly the patriotic thing. It's the moral thing. And probably the better long-term thing for the party is to try to stomp on that early. But they did, the choice they made was, we need those voters. And so we're going to maybe step back and like, I, won't. I John Boehner, I, Paul Ryan, I won't say those things, but I'm certainly not going to yell at the guy who did. And Trump is very example of this because, and I tell this story in great detail in the book, Trump is the leader of the birther crusade, which is a, it's not, like some people say it's a crypto racist thing. It's a racist, it's a racist thing. That's all it is. It is that, it is to make Barack Obama un-American because he doesn't- It's an
0: opportunistic look, racist Yes.
1: Thing. And so in Republicans, at the time, they kept their distance, like elective Republicans. And they were like, oh, we don't agree with this. This, this is bad. But then, so that happened in April of two, May of 2011 was when Obama finally put out his birth certificate two days before bin Laden was killed. And uh, it wasn't a year later that the Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, who by all reports is a good guy. Said, I don't know. Goes, How can I know? Goes right uptown here. Yeah. And gets on his knee and asks for Donald Trump's endorsement. Sees Trump. It's yeah. F- I
0: mean, yeah. He, he
1: went to look for his endorsement, and that and they all, they all did all those candidates a parade I of. I mean, them. that's
0: the best moment for the, me in Heilman and Halpern's book. Yeah. Actually, the second book is yeah. that moment. Yeah. As they draw that horrible things. Let's uh, let's take a second and talk about something that I've come to love and that is Buffalo Trace bourbon. I'll tell you, uh, the other day, as we were finishing writing, uh, I saw the Buffalo Trace bottle. I saw these amazing uh, Billions rocks glasses that we have, and uh, it doesn't take a genius to put those things together, and I uh, took a couple of sips, I guess a couple of fingers, some would say, of Buffalo Trace. And, and I got to say, uh, first of all, it looks great and it smells great. And uh, it's a deep amber uh, whiskey that has a complex aroma of vanilla, mint, and molasses. And you taste those things. A lot of time people will say that, the advertising materials. This thing opens up, man, which... Uh, I guess the kind of thing you're supposed to say, but it, actually you feel it uh, when you put it in your mouth. Uh, you feel the thing opening up and you feel it re- revealing itself. And um, look, it, it's a bourbon. You, I chose to put uh, a, one giant ice cube in there because I like it. I like how it like, feels and sounds, and I do like the effect that it has on the bourbon. Uh, but you can drink it neat, on the rocks, or in a cocktail like uh, a Manhattan or an old-fashioned. I didn't, I didn't feel the need to mess with the flavor, though, by adding those other things. Uh, I loved it just the way that it was. And um, even talking about it like this, uh, I'm feeling like maybe I should go have just another sip. Uh, follow them on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Buffalo Trace Bourbon, and um, get some and drink it. Let me know if you dig it as much as I do Buffalo, Trace, bourbon. Yum. When you're you you you're a comms director then, explain how you guys do the math of how you're going to manage that situation. You have this crazy guy starting to say, I'm going to offer all this money to share, all this yeah. shit. How do you decide what you're going to take up, what you're not, how you're going to respond, how you're not?
1: How do you include the president? When do you include the president? So, so I, I'll give the short version of the story so people can read the book to get the long version. But the... I was during the campaign this crept up in the early days of the campaign not from Trump but just like in email chains the second
0: campaign first, the first campaign,
1: campaign first campaign Obama's not an American right he's a muslim and he's not an American uh, he is American and it really wouldn't matter if he was a muslim but people had questions and it was sort of creeping up we were getting questions from our volunteers like not they didn't believe it but they're like we're going door to so door my, yeah, my and uncle's asking someone's me,
0: grandmother sends yeah, a note
1: they want to know and so what we did, we released the certificate of live birth Right. Which is a birth certificate, and we're like, and then we 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 gave that to everyone. Someone asked, you show them the birth certificate. Kind of went away. Flares back up in 2011 when Trump grabs this, and the the traditional view of communications through my whole career to that point was, you never give oxygen to the crazy. Like we're not going to put the imprimatur of the presidency in responding to this. Like other people can do it. Like we could yell about it from the briefing room. But we're not going to – the president cannot go down and do this. And we had discussions about it, and I was adamantly opposed. And Obama had a different view. And so Obama goes home to Chicago for a fundraiser. And when he's when, – when Obama's home in Chicago, he gets to stay in his house, which he loves. And his house is like frozen in time from the day he went to Washington. Like sure. the mail is still on the desk. And so he's there by himself. Uh, the first lady and the kids are in D.C., He starts going through boxes, and he finds a box of stuff from uh, his grandmother's old condo or home in Hawaii, and he finds something that he thinks is his birth certificate. He brings it back to the White House, shows it to the council, and says, I found my birth certificate. We should put this out. Uh, Bob Bauer, who's the White House council at the time he looks at it and says, this is not your birth certificate. This is the thing you buy at the gift store that looks like a birth certificate in your frame. And Obama was like, well, why don't you go get my birth certificate? And so they got it and didn't really tell anyone. And I went up to a meeting in Bauer's office where I thought I was in trouble because when you get a call from the White House lawyer, it's like, come to the office immediately. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and I walked in, and David Plouffe, who was the senior advisor at the time, and my boss is sitting there, and I'm just like...
0: What did I do? What did
1: I do? Like, it's the Republicans have taken over Congress. They were subpoenaing shit. Like, what, like, what, like, what is going to happen here? And they're like, the president wants to put out his birth certificate. And I was like, okay, like, when? They're like, two days from now. Hmm. And Obama's argument was... We got to take this head on. Like he has an instinct that runs counter to traditional political thinking, which is no matter what the elephant in the room is, he wants to address it. Even if it takes us off message for that day. And And the reason you need to stay on message is because you're trying to pass something or move something. Yeah, like it's so hard. Like when you're president, it's like. All this news is happening. Scandal, like fake scandals are happening. They're like world events are happening, national disasters. And it's, you get these very rare moments where you get to like, we want to tell people about our healthcare plan so they can sign up for it or so we can pass it. And so you get one of those days and then to have president say, we're not going to use that day for that. Instead, we're going to release the birth certificate, which is then going to launch a week of coverage about the birth certificate. So we're not going to lose this day. We're going to lose all and, these you know,
0: days. And you guys have to be right. Yeah. I mean, you must know it better be fully
1: vetted and the actual certificate. It has to be the exact – even though you had to
0: know at the time, like, well, the conspiracy theorists won't believe it regardless of what they do.
1: What we really wanted to do was shut Trump up and sort of cause the press to stop covering it, stop giving him this megamount. Because it wasn't just Fox. He was living on the Today Show because he was pushing – it was time for the new season or renewal of Celebrity Apprentice or something. So he was out doing his press tour. And – He's very he's very Pavlovian. He does something, he gets press coverage, he does it again, right? He it, that he saw that and that and was as Seth happening. Seth
0: Meyers said the other day on uh JJ Redick's podcast, I think it was that Obama, I mean that uh Trump builds his set the way a comedian would. his yeah. speech the way a comedian yeah. would. If that works, does that get a yeah. pop, it goes in. Is yeah. that get a pop, it goes in. And that's pretty
1: usual for politicians. Obama would do the same thing with his uh stump speech. He would really in the riff, he'll go out and try something. like really, he would I write his did it too. Yeah, and he would like he would tr- especially at a rally. Especially and
0: then he and John would get together and then fi- figure out how to incorporate it. Yeah,
1: and so so a lot of when he's really working on some speech, the speechwriter would travel with him the whole time. And he when, he when he would really do it, but this is like the Wednesday night at the comedy cellar is like a fundraiser late at night. News is over the. It's nothing, no cameras in the room, just like no the stakes, basically. Yeah. And he would just like do it and he would be like, I, I like that. I like what I said about X.
0: And Let's put it in.
1: Yeah. Or if, or if sometimes he would, he wouldn't even be planning on working on something, but he would just try it and feel good. And he would like, he'd email me that night or call me and say, Hey, can you get the transcript of what I said and get it to Favreau or oh, get it to cool. Cody Keener, or you have to Love It, whoever else to work it in. Did, did you,
0: uh, do you feel you guys dunked on him hard enough when you then came out with the birth certificate?
1: I mean, the, to the, Point that we now worry that we dunked on him so hard he ran for president. Well, no, you dunked on him
0: at the event. I mean, yeah. you dunked on him at the yeah. Dinner. Yeah.
1: And- I think we, the, Obama tried to, the point he wanted to make was the opportunity cost for our country of getting wrapped around the axle on this trivial BS. Of this lunatic. Yeah, it's not just Trump. Did you guys
0: think at all this guy could win no. an never. election?
1: Never. I've never been more wrong about anything Right? the life. whole time he was just a crazy
0: man yeah to you guys a crazy to me, i mean yeah. to me too I, yeah I, I i missed it by a mile yeah. i couldn't have been further away yeah
1: every everything and I have, a, I have a whole chapter in my book on this where i try to understand why i missed it because i think it's too hard a question to say why did he win well, but i'm gonna like, ask you
0: wh- contra- so okay uh and i understand that positive america has a big broad audience hmm. of lots of different people but and i know you guys do talk about this but what does it say to you personally? How did it change the way you thought about fel- your fellow Americans, that so many of them voted for him? Different than for George Bush or for Ronald Reagan, like, and still support him? Like, how does it, how does it affect how you view
1: a, a big portion of these people? What I try to do, I really do try this, because I am not someone who, do, are there racists who support Trump? Yes, 100%. Those racists opposed Obama. We would periodically see them or hear from them. when We worked in the White House, um, no doubt. What I try to really do is understand what it is that is happening con- in our country and in politics that would cause someone to do that. Because I think voters are very smart. I think they're much smarter than we give them credit for. And I think a lot of these voters took a re- took a gamble with Trump. They sort of said – I'm not getting what I want from traditional politicians. It has not worked for me. I got screwed in the financial crisis. Wall Street's gotten rich. I haven't. These elites are looking at Whatever the reason is, they feel separated from a part of American institutions. And so Trump offered them – like Obama was a risk to a lot of people. Sure. And I think Trump was a risk. It is now going to be incumbent upon Democrats. There are some people we're never going to get most of those people. But some of them are available to us, and we got to go make an explanation about why that was the wrong choice and why we're the right choice.
0: So this is the second time you sort of, I think, in a disciplined way for yourself, and not dis, you know, as a comms person yeah. but also a disciplined way, framed events in the light most favorable to the people you're discussing. Mm-hmm. But come on. What's beyond that, though? Like you said, I want to think this, or I, yeah. I try to tell myself this. I Because I, I don't think it's as simple. The reason mm. I'm pushing yeah. on it is. What makes me sad is I don't think it's as simple as racism, but I do think there's a calculation in there that, like I ran into an insurance guy the other day, very successful insurance guy the other day, who basically said to me, "Look, I mean, I'm for choice, I'm for all this stuff, I, you know, but uh, you know, uh, it's good for the market, and I, I'm a, I'm not a Hollywood liberal, yeah. and and I was just like, I'm trying to understand what the kind of utilitarianism that would allow you to shut off the Instability of this person, like just at its base, this unstable narcissistic yeah. um a me machine uh, they had to know it, they saw him enough that they had to understand some part yeah. of it and decide and and, and and I'm a mean person, yeah, forget race, yeah. Mean to the under, mean to the less fortunate, like as a, almost as a policy. Like my policy mm. is to crush the skulls of those who can't defend themselves. Yeah. That's what I see. And it makes yeah. me – it's the first time in my life, 52 years old, that I've lost this sense of fellowship with all my – like with this huge part of the
1: country. Yeah, I, I don't want to be overly generous because it, it ver- it's scary and worrisome. That a large portion of the country would decide this was the right path. And it's not like I understand populism. I understand people who want to be Republican. I even understand the calculation of that guy you said. Like if your view is Trump makes me more money and I like money, I don't agree with that. I think that is an unfortunate way to think about your life. But and wait, your the ris- guy I'm
0: talking about? Good
1: guy. Yeah. That's the thing.
0: But and like that, a good, good, good father, yeah. a good friend to people, yeah. just, uh, but, but the way he ordered his priorities makes yeah. me enraged.
1: Yeah. I understand, like, I don't agree with that. I understand how a person could come to that choice. What I don't understand and what, and what really worries me is the view that what I find to be the worst parts about Trump, what you say, this utter, this view that empathy is weakness, that you want to kick down. That that is a feature, not a bug. Like I pe- people say, I hate that about him, but I gotta try something different. My life is not going the way I want it. Politics not working for me. I'm willing to suck it up and take a risk on this guy for that reason. And maybe I do something different four years from now when I when he when I he has to answer the question, is my life better off? Like I get that. I I wouldn't do it, but there are people, unfortunately, and this is what I think is so dangerous about this president, because it's changing how we think about morality in this country, right? And there are people who now will will take what we think to be the worst parts. I mean, even some of his voters thought to be the worst of them, and, and they are now strengths. Like, it is good that he is mean. It is good that he's willing to say the things that people won't say, even when those are racist. It's good that he's willing to stand up for white people. Like, that, that that makes me very sad about a portion of the country and worried about where the country goes as we sort of go through this transition that we're in. Conservatism was supposed to be the part – like the, the ideals
0: of – original ideals of mm. conservatism like that come from capital L liberalism, yeah. Yeah. Locke and all that shit yep. was supposed to be about liberty, yep. individual liberty. And we have a guy who wants to be a dictator yeah. who speaks of the strong men um, who lead other countries yeah. uh, as the, having the characteristics that ought to be emulated. How do we counter message like you must be giving a lot of thought to this because it feels to me like no message is working at all. Basically, I could say the thing I could and I know the studies about how um, facts don't matter, but I could still like show uh, the dictator what the dictator's done, the way Trump's rationalized that dictator's behavior, the way then he's lauded that person and how he said he wishes he were more like that and our country would allow for it. And it doesn't land. Is it that
1: people don't think it can? Like, why
0: doesn't it land?
1: Well, I think this is the question with – people ask this all the time. Why, what is the – where are the consequences? Why does nothing matter?
0: And how do we ma- – but, but yeah. second, and then, so how like, do we tell the story? How right? do we tell the story in a way that lands? There has to be a so, way.
1: So my belief – so I'd say two things about this. One, he has historically low approval ratings, has accomplished less than anyone in this job previously – is under federal investigation. His campaign manager is in jail. Like he has suffered in political ways possible, but we have made the test. Has he been tossed out of office yet? Right. We like he will be held to account for the first time in November 2018. And most that's a,
0: people think that he's going to. Most smart people I talk to think he's going to win in 2020. You would. Most smart people I talk to in politics. Yeah, think I, he's going to
1: win in 2020. It. You would believe based on history that he should. Because if you assume the economy stays strong, incumbents win more often than they lose. They lose in two scenarios primary challenge from the ideological flank and third party. That's how Bush lost, George H.W. Bush, and that's how Carter lost. And so they normally win. Then you say no one with the approval ratings as low has ever won before, so we're going to test what the real, what the real, what in the new politics. Here's the story that I think Democrats should tell. This is a story that I think we begin with in 2018 and then you build upon in 2020. This is the there's there has to be a whole policy agenda and positive narrative for Democrats. Let me tell you the argument against Trump. We have to we need a check against the chaos and the corruption of Trump and Republicans in Washington. And the chaos is the erratic tweets, the de- the decision that we're going to we're going to fist bump Kim Jong Un and fight a war with Trudeau. But in that In that chaos, you have to explain why that chaos matters. It can't just be bad. Like the
0: Canada thing strikes people like us as as one of the craziest things in my lifetime. But why is it bad though?
1: You tariffs like that is going to raise the cost of goods. It's going to cost jobs. It's going to hurt the economy. Right now, because we're in this pissy match with China, the market was down 280 points last time I looked. Like, that's people's 401k. So it can't be an aesthetic argument against chaos. Like, we want normalcy in this country because it feels better. You have to say there's consequences to that chaos. That erratic behavior of Trump has to make it matter. Then the second argument, which is related to that, is about the corruption. It's about Trump, his children enriching themselves. It's about the tax cut that gave massive giveaways that raise people's premiums to pay for tax breaks for Bobby Axelrod, to tie this back. And, uh, and in exchange for that, they got huge donations from billionaires. It's, it's like a quid pro quo. So you got to make that argument. And so it's got to be chaos and corruption. And I think Democrats are going to make that argument in the fall. And then presidential campaigns are, are battles between two human beings. They're questions of character. And values. And you and we're gonna need Trump is able to He'll ma- only
0: debate once if he debates at all, I think.
1: Yeah, he may.
0: I think he won't debate three times.
1: Probably that's like that is a norm that if will probably I, go away. If yeah. I think
0: about right, yeah. why is he gonna do that? Yeah.
1: And like we're democrats, you know, and I offer some ideas in the book, Democrats are gonna have to rethink everything about campaigns to beat him in 2020. But campaigns are always question what Trump is able to do. Is he was able to control the conversation in 2016 and make it seem like he and Hillary were basically the same, right? And dishonest and corrupt. And so, do you want the dishonest, corrupt status quo, or the dishonest, corrupt change? change and it's right. like, well, I don't like status quo, so we'll go with change. Democrats have the opportunity. Being the change candidate is where you want to be in this in our in this world we live in now, where people are very distrustful of institutions, or are very frustrated, and so the Democrat can be the change, but they can't let. Trump make them what I say a paler shade of orange, right?
0: That's great. What do you want most uh, listeners of this podcast to to be doing? What do you want them to be reading? What do you want them to be paying attention? I mean, they they should all read your book. Yeah, read the book. Buy the book book and and read the book. Yes. But what do you want them to be so that when they go to Thanksgiving dinner, when they go get on, you know, when grandma comes to visit the kids. What, what do you want them to to know? Where, where, what do you want them reading? What do you want them paying attention to? How do you want them thinking about the world?
1: I think I mean I think you should read all the quote unquote fake news, failing news, I mean, CNN, we'll, we'll listen New to Pod Save America. Yeah, but. listen to no, but not just Pod Save America. Like the fact, Slate
0: political yeah. gabfest. Is but here,
1: but here's the thing I would say is people. This is a question we get all the time at our Pod Save America shows, which is, what do I say? To my Trump-loving mother, and here's what I, or my Trump-loving uncle, here's what I'd say. Don't argue with your Trump-loving uncle. You don't have to ruin Thanksgiving dinner. Go find three people who wouldn't otherwise vote, get them registered to vote, and turn them out. Because you're not going to change your Trump-loving mom's vote, but you can nullify it. And so I think we spend too much time trying to convince hardcore Trump supporters that they are wrong. And every time we do that, it just reinforces – like it has the opposite effect sometimes. So go find people who wouldn't vote and convince them to get involved. What
0: older like uh, movies or books do you think people should watch? Like I like recommending Ace in the Hole to people, the Billy Wilder yeah. movie, which t- talks about like what 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 is out there that you think is worth people spending their time for context that's not just work?
1: Yeah. Um, let's see. What would be –
0: and you're a triple pursuit maven. Yeah, you I know. know. I'm trying to
1: think of what would be not work. Because it, it feels like if you're trying to understand this time, it's work. I think Catch-22 sure. by Joseph Heller is a book yeah. and a movie. Um, is Read a, that book. Yes, yeah, it is. should know that book. It yeah. helps you. Because it's, it's it's not just about war. And read
0: Kurt Vonnegut too, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I think uh, a, I mean, a, a great book that sort of speaks this time is Fortlandia. Which is about the the end of the Nixon era and what's the book called? Fordlandia, um, oh, yeah. and is an excellent book. I think um, really the one here. This is work. So this is like we everyone's got to work now. Like, okay. but here like in the give us the work. This is the work. The, I think the best way to understand some of what's happening in sort of Washington and politics right now. Is to read Best and the Brightest by David Haverstam. Of course. It's the it's the one of the classic books, but we are you can it helps you understand the mis, like the mistakes that have been made and how they get us in this position.
0: Here, so okay, that is work, yeah. but it's worth it. He's a great writer. But here's the little reward you get. If you read that book, then go find the Doonesbury strips that were about the characters in Doonesbury getting a phone call to be interviewed by Oliver Stab. Yeah. And if you've read the book, that's really funny and that will be just like your little icing dessert. I would also say, have you seen the movie uh, Weirdly Young Andy Griffith starred in it Face in the Crowd? Uh-uh. It's about one of these kind of populist politicians yeah. and how it happens. So you'd love it. Here's, here's you this, have to watch that movie. Here's the
1: sports thing to read, which wow. may help you understand yeah. Trump. John Feinstein's Season on the Brink.
0: Well, I love that you brought it up. I was <laughs> talking about it two days ago. Yeah. Three days ago. Yeah. Because I was a Bobby Knight fanatic. Yeah. Um, but uh, Bobby Knight was good. Uh, Bobby Knight actually had a level of follow-through and commitment yeah. to a set of ideals. Yeah. He was a raving asshole. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out, in with time, you look back on it, he was an abuser, yeah. an asshole, terrible in lo- lots yeah. of ways. But he kept promises to these people. So if he said to Quinn Buckner, yeah. I am going to then call coaches yeah. for you, he would... Call coaches for yeah. Quinn Buckner, so yes. Uh, but the power of the personality of Buck, and nar- um, the
1: nar- the the angry narcissism that you see in Trump, I think, is a huge part of that. He, I think you see a view of a narcissist like that. I know that book
0: like by heart. Yeah, i can read it many times. That yeah. book, that's <laughs> fine.
1: I mean, I love Feinstein. <laughs> analysis is yeah. that book. That's yeah. um, amazing.
0: Hey man, so look, here's the thing. I don't feel bad about leaving out. I'm going to ask one more question yeah. about your day, but I don't. I don't feel bad about leaving out the stuff about your the biographical stuff because people should buy the book and they'll get it. Yeah, you you know that you will. You talk in the book about how you found this life for yourself, um, about what you were interested in as a kid, about what you were like as a no. kid. So I feel okay not hitting that yeah. stuff here because that's in the book and people mm. should get it. But you talk a little bit the, the last two things and stick together. Uh, you talk about. Uh, what a typical day was like for you in the White House. Yeah. Like, what would happen? What time would you wake up? I know you're a crazy. You know, you're, <laughs> before I met you, I read your book. Your yeah. work ethic was
1: mm. crazy. Could you just talk about what that took? Yeah. So I this was the typical day in the White House, a place where there are no typical days. But so I would wake up four thirty, four forty five in the morning, and because I I had in my head this view, I was a crazy person that you sleep was. Wasted time and so if I was sleeping, I must not really care enough about what this the selection or work it was That is a unhealthy way to think you do can. not do that. It almost killed me. You can read about it in the book and 445 I'd get up start reading Clips that were being sent to us by the poor kids where they get up at the crack of dawn and send them to us I would start emailing with the reporters like Mike Allen who wrote the tip sheets that Politico for Politico that sort now, of from, is his thing now. Same thing and then uh, I'd take a shower then I would uh, start taking phone calls from White House correspondents who were going to be on the sun, on the morning shows. They would call like 6, you know, like six fifteen, whatever. And like I'm, I got to hit at 7. Like Jake Tapper when he was at ABC all would call like every morning for months with – you know, good – like you want them to do that. You want them to check, uh, ask you what they heard. Do you have sure. any news for me? And you would do that. I'd drive to work. I'd get to work. I insisted on being near the first person in the office every time. I would, I'd get to work and before, like, before, like, I live like four minutes from the office. So really, I really care what song was on the radio because it's the only one I'd hear. And pull in the parking lot, go to my office, get through my inbox, work on, work on my to-do list. First meetings at 7.30. You've done all that by 7.30. Yeah, read every paper by 7.30, eaten breakfast. It was, one of the cooler things would happen is I'd sit at my desk and I'd be the only person in my part of the West Wing. And sometimes I'd be sitting there, I'd be on the phone with these reporters and not paying attention and all of a sudden like something would bump against my leg and I'd scream. And it would be the president's dog. Oh, that's great. Who was who would wander the West Wing, but I was the only person in that part of the West Wing. There are other people over there but in that part of the West Wing who had food in their trash can. So he would like sniff it out and come try to eat like the remains of my breakfast. So then you do meetings, seven thirty, seven thirty, nonstop. Meeting, 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 meeting. And then when would you decompress at all?
0: I would and absorb to think. Like would you be able to think then from eight eight at night to ten?
1: You, we, the last meeting at seven thirty. I would probably spend like seven thirty to eight fifteen trying to figure out the next day, write my to do list, go home, order dinner from someplace in a time in which they didn't have Postmates or Seamless or whatever else. So you'd have to wait for someone. You have to either stop and get it on the way yeah, home, sure. and then like actually use a phone to call someone and have them bring you food, which is weird. And then at nine o'clock, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal post their stories for the next day. So then, everyone we work with reads those stories, and we start emailing back and forth. Is this right? Do we get this fixed? Can someone call this reporter? I would go to around 10, 10, nine forty-five, ten. I'd be done with work. I mean, you 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 always have your BlackBerry. because we had back then with you, and you were always responding. Because so this is the the this would happen is and then from like ten to eleven, I'd watch television, either a West Coast basketball game if yeah. that was on, uh, or because I would have League Pass. Or some show that was on my DVR, right? And then you go to bed around 11.30. Wake up at 4.30. Wake up at 4.30. Well, it was
0: heroic work that you were doing. I, hmm. I, I, I always thought, like, the people working in the White House to, are doing for the country, you know, to their own bodily harm. and They don't care. And, and um, you know, I just can't wait for the days when I feel that way. Again, about it. People should read uh, Dan Fiverr's book
1: that's called... Yes, we still can. Politics in the Age of Obama, Trump, and Twitter.
0: And uh, catchy, pithy. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, go get the book. Listen to Pod Save America on Fridays when uh, Dan is the host. Yep. We do Thursday thursday
1: mornings. Comes out Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. If we don't do our job right, comes out Friday morning. So which one are you on? Thursdays.
0: You're on the Thursday Yeah, Thursday, yep. So uh, listen to that and um, follow Dan on Twitter. You're on there.
1: Oh, You're active on there as (laughs) I am. You can
0: follow me at Brian Koppman. Follow Dan Uh, at at Dan Pfeiffer. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Hey, so thanks to Buffalo Trace Bourbon, uh, both for the experience I'm about to have and for supporting the podcast. Go check out Buffalo Trace Bourbon. Drink it up.